We've come from a religious past where it's easy to be othered. But what is it like to be othered in your own body? On this week's episode of Life After, we're talking about fat phobia, embodiment, and eating disorder recovery. Before we jump to the interview with my friend Aaron, wanted to give an update on my situation and what's going on with my family. A couple of years ago now, we were having some issues with my mom, my ex-wife and I, as we were trying to make boundaries with her, but they kept on getting crossed. It got to the point where we needed a break, a six-month break. The plan was after the break that we would see a mediator and work through it, but instead we were met with a letter from her lawyer. Yeah, most if not all states have grandparent laws, but the one in Missouri says that parents that keep their grandkids away from a grandparent for over six months can be sued, and then it's determined of whether or not they were right or reasonable to have that restriction. Because this was a power move by my mom, who's extremely evangelical, we didn't really have a choice but to fight it. But it's left us with huge legal fees. It's an unfair system, and it sucks. When the legal stuff started, I had to put the podcast on hold. That's why there's a over a year and a half long gap in the episode releases. I have one more episode that was recorded from before. My plan is to put that out, and once things settle down, I hope to be able to come back and have an episode and be able to talk about things more in depth. In the meantime, I am guest starring on a couple other podcasts in the area just so I can kind of be able to talk about some of this and get it off my chest. And I hope to come back and do an episode for the Life After on it and maybe even record a few more episodes after that as well. So again, find my GoFundMe. You can look up Sued by Evangelical Mom or you can search by my name. Any help is really appreciated. Thank you very much. And without any more further ado, here is the episode with Aaron. Let me kind of unpack that for you a little bit. Aaron, welcome to the life after. How are you today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Where are you calling from? Where's home? I'm calling from Denver right now. I grew up in Seattle, but I'm uh, currently located in Denver. Are you just kind of picking the coolest cities out of America to live in one by one or what's going on? I have been uh, really lucky, essentially. (laughs) I went on an academic job market, which is kind of, you know, a roll of the dice where you'll be in the country and... (laughs) <laughs> lucky to end up here. <laughs> That's awesome. I think you've got Austin next, uh, if yeah. you're hitting all the cool cities. And then St. Louis, because St. Louis is the coolest city in America. Why uh, is the mic on? Hello? Why did it get quiet? Hello? Oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, so how did, um, can you give me a little bit of your background? Like, what was it like growing up in your household? Did you have the Christian fundamentalists readily available or did that come later for you? Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I was saved with salvation mm. at the age of two. Um, Damn, that's I, that's like maybe a record that I've heard. So way to go! <laughs> right? Um, I, I guess I understood it as um, Jesus taking my spank away. Um, the spank <sighs> being the natural. See, if I were to say that today, I feel like it would have a different meaning. Right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) For me, potentially as well. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Um, But yeah, so kind of from birth, um, Mm. 
my dad is a, a Baptist pastor Fuck. Um, <laughs> in a small congregation in a pretty conservative church in Seattle. So even though I had the more uh, liberal upbringing of being in Seattle, that really kind of hammered down the uh, Christian oppression that was happening. Right. In terms of, um, you know, not uh, church was definitely not normalized growing up among my peers, just at my church. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was kind of easy to believe a lot of the um, kind of persecutionist theology of, um, you know, Christians being persecuted in our culture. Everybody's out to get them and they're just Mm -hmm. trying to make the world better. And we just don't understand that. Yes. Yeah. That bullshit. Yeah. Wow. Did you have siblings um, or was it just you? I was the oldest of four. Um, we are all in different places in our journeys now. Um, yeah. some, some who are still very committed um, to very conservative versions of the church and others of us uh, who see no place for church in our lives. And some of us who are kind of in the midst of our own deconstruction journey, which is where I kind of put myself that's cool that you have other siblings that are going through the same thing. You yeah. know, like in my family, it's strange being the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's cool that you've got others who kind of understand and can help articulate to your family. Does there seem to be an understanding or a um, effort to still include you all or to help you feel seen? Or is it a different situation. I'm the identified patient in the family. I am the the one who has kind of chosen to be more upfront with where I'm at in that process and straightforward. So there's a lot of tension, I think, between me and the more conservative members of my family. And then there's kind of a lack of tension with some of my other siblings um, because it's not something that's well known. Um, Understood. So, and I'm also the only one who's out as queer and has, you know, separated from a traditional marriage and and those types of things. And so that kind of brings with it all of the same types of separation and and isolation, I think. Wow. Can you tell me more about that? I want to hear what was like growing up in your home and Mm -hmm. realizing you're different and queer. And Mm -hmm. another thing that I want to touch on, and and this will be a big part of our interview too, I'm just letting the guests know. Um, Can you tell Really, how about this? Really quick, can you tell a bit about the work that you do, sure. and then let's go back to your um, to your story and see how you got to that place. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, a postmodern gonna, storytelling. You I know, love we're going to give the ending, and then we're going to go. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's good. It's good to have that on that like through line of hope. Um, I mm. think good stories like this. Yeah. Like so that. right now I'm an assistant professor at the University of Denver, and my work centers around eating disorders and, you know, also disorders that commonly occur. So substance use I've done quite a bit with as well, particularly I'm interested in increasing access for people with eating disorders to treatment. Um, And a lot of that comes from my own story of not having health insurance as a, as a pastor's kid, not being able to get treatment then um, when I was in my adolescence, uh, losing treatment as a young college student because I was kicked out of school because of the eating disorder. And so, um, Oh my God, that's so counterproductive. Oh my God. Yeah. I really want to get that access out there. Um, and then kind of in the midst of all this realizing just how 
cis, white, thin, straight, our treatment centers are. Um, yes. And so, you know, there's not as much of a place for trans folks. There's like the places themselves are really harmful for fat folks most of the time. Oftentimes we see very little representation, culture awareness for our BIPOC community members. So really thinking about like, how do we, how do we get recovery and supports and even harm reduction approaches available to people with these disorders? I love it. I feel like um, the conversation of uh, just fat people or just people with bigger bodies or people who don't fit into the status quo, just that doesn't get brought up into the deconstruction conversations because even though the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about you all had to be skinny. Uh, people extract that out of it, or they extract this idea of no uh, normality of like what is mm -hmm. the norm, what's acceptable, what isn't, and then try to fit you into that, and then they spiritualize it. Like we get things like the way down, um, yes. which was you know the the diet thing that was Christianized and just was a huge thing, a huge movement. Mm -hmm. But even when it comes to deconstruction spaces, I've seen like anytime that fat phobia or anything is talked about or fatness is talked about, it's always done by like um, scholarly skinny people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, what the hell are we doing? Yeah. Um, that representation is so important. So thank you for sharing that. I cannot wait yeah. for us to really dive into that more. Um, but first, can you give us kind of what, brought you to there? What was your upbringing like that kind of sure. influenced your journey toward that direction? Um, well, like I said, it's, it started so early, right? And it started mm. with all of these messages. And now that I'm an adult and I can identify like, okay, like here's how child development plays in here with how I interpreted these messages, right? I can have a lot more like compassion for myself and for my caregivers at the time. Um, so I, you know, I think one of the really clear influences from the beginning was this like black and white thinking, right. Um, which gets hammered to us into us in terms of morality. That Everything's binary. Exactly. Remember, I remember like when we would look back at movies or books that we would say are good or bad. One mm -hmm. of the Christian themes was to be like, well, it's a good story of good versus evil. Yes. Yes. What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> I mean, that's so, and it's always presented in a very binary way that like mm -hmm. the good guys believe this and the bad guys, they do these things. But if the bad guys, if they don't believe this, then they can't be a good guy. And if they do believe this, they can't be a bad guy. You know, it's like a, mm -hmm. it all gets wrapped up into that binary bullshit and it just doesn't yeah. reflect reality. And that there is, you know, that any hint of sin is sin period <sighs> and sin in the the worst form mm -hmm. um you know and also along with this i think that duality of body mind or spirit body where the body is of the world and the body is evil right and mm -hmm. the the needs of the body or the urges of the body or the attractions of the body like all of that is contaminated by the world by the first evil and that like we are called to be spiritual beings in heaven, not necessarily like embodied beings on earth. Wow. Hmm. So I can trace like the, the messaging and the behaviors starting when I was like five, when I would learn like, okay, 
you know, there's three types of milk in our refrigerator. You know, there's there's whole milk, which is for my baby brother because he's a baby and babies need fat. And there's 2% because that's what my dad likes. And then there's non-fat for my mom who is watching her weight and uh, trying to lose weight and all this stuff. And so it was kind of this, like, who do I follow after? Well, I'm not a baby and I'm not a man, you know, so I guess I'm, I'm supposed to drink this non-fat milk, you know? So it was just kind of some of those, like those early understandings bodies. And, and, you know, similarly, my mom was kind of constantly involved in some diet weight loss program or another, um, which she, she legitimately believed she needed all the time. And so like watching her grow, like I can remember doing like praise aerobics five years old on, you know, in terms of like, you know, laying on the ground and like worship music is playing in the background and all these (laughs) women in like leotards, like really brightly colored leotards and like, Spandex, hey, that doesn't sound so pants. bad now that you mention it. Uh, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I can remember doing that, like having yeah. like women's group at our house and then having like, you know, aerobics time afterwards and all the kids would get to come and join. But it was teaching me that like women's bodies were unruly and mm. needed control and that they were not okay as they were and that women had to be very careful about what they ate. And even... For me, I was a really thin child. I was a skinny child. And so even though like I received affirmation for my body, it was always things like, like, I wish I had a body like yours, which coming from an adult is kind of weird, right? Because like so uncomfortable. You're a kid, you know, and you're also like, like you gave me this body. I'm modeled after you, according to DNA, like, Mm -hmm. and it, you know, there's this like fear of like, okay, my body's okay now. It's acceptable now. But what happens when I do grow up? What happens? if I don't look this way forever, which I shouldn't at six, right? Like hopefully we're maturing and we're growing. Um, (laughs) But you know, it was, it was very scary to mature into a body that then needed, I needed to constantly diet and constantly work out and still never feel good enough. Right. Still never feel that, that peace with my body. That was scary. It was almost like you were given an acceptance, but said you have to stay this way in order to keep it. Yeah. And, and even though that wasn't explicitly said, that's kind of what we pick up on. Exactly. I, I think back at uh, my family and I'm not, I don't want to share any trauma that's not mine to share for my family, but um, my dad was verbally abusive and would very, would tell a family member, um, you're fat or you're ugly and, and shit. And then that family member would then come to the kids. And then it was our job to like take care of them emotionally. And so a lot of that got picked up by me internally. And especially as somebody who's uh, out and gay into the mm-hmm. gay community because eating disorders and all of this sort of like fat phobia and all this shit comes up so much in the gay community, because it's like, hey, let's bring that into our world and make that mm-hmm. part of us. That's great. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. But we internalize that shit as kids. Yeah. And when it's enforced by our parents, especially parents who are talking about these things with the same urgency and convictions as they yeah. do the religious stuff, especially yes. your dad being a pastor, that really trains our brains to think in the same ways Mm -hmm. oh god yeah and and i could see that also like i'm glad you brought up brought up the modeling because i could see that with other people in my life 
people were judged for their bodies, you know, Mm. you know, especially like in churches, there's this judgment of single women who don't marry. Right. Uh, And like, if they're single fat women who do not marry, there's this reason for why they are not fulfilling their like divine purpose. And similarly in terms of siblings or other people at school or, you know, things like that who are in larger bodies and it's, um, and you see how they're treated. Yes. Um, And, and, and it's fear inducing in terms of, what if, what if I'm thought of that way? Um, and you kind of have a, we had a double, we had a double because of the queer side of it too. So yes. I'm thinking like a good, <laughs> well, how do you mind how I'm 36 next month. So that's kind uh-huh. of the area. Are you, were you raised around the same time period as me then? Yeah, I'm 37. 37. Okay. So we grew up <laughs> with like Rosie O'Donnell and yes. she's a bigger woman. And I remember her talk show. I, mm-hmm. I, I look back, I'm like, oh, of course I'm queer. Of course, because like she was like everything that I wanted. I wanted to be, I wanted a talk show. I wanted to date, but like she was a larger woman and she was queer. So in my family, I would always hear what they thought about her with being queer. Yes. And you'd hear what they said about the weight. And it's like, shit, I'm fucking both of those things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now what are you going to do when I'm honest with who I am or Mm -hmm. if I gain weight? Or if I, whatever, like, what is my mm-hmm. family going to respond to then? Because it's like when you have like a, a skinny friend and mm-hmm. they're like looking up to them and they're like, oh my God, I look so fat in this. And you're like, okay, dickwad, what, is, what are you saying about me then? Because I'm obviously yeah. larger. And yeah. they just don't get it of yeah. like how that affects. And another thing that I was thinking of too is how much of our own biases and desires get spiritualized subconsciously. Mm. So we do that whole like, oh, God has the one out there for me and and I would be attracted. So it's almost like if somebody, because everybody's spiritualizing their attractions, if you're not being chosen or looked at positively, then you feel like there's something wrong with you because God is not directing anybody toward you. That Mm -hmm. sort of bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you experience it like that sort of pressuring or that ideology? Well, I think there's this that the ideals of like how you have to be as a woman to attract the right kind of partner. Right. You know, which for me was always like some youth pastor in a band, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, his name is probably Connor. I I feel like it is. I feel like it is. So, and especially too, because like, I wasn't also allowed to date in the same way. Um, and so it didn't really matter if people were attracted to you because like you can only date if they're Christian and you can only date if like they have a spiritual walk that your parents approve of <laughs> and they can be your spiritual leader. I don't know. There, there, there was a lot going on there, but I, I definitely had a lot of worries and concerns over being that kind of, that kind of person. And I, you know, even back, I was thinking about my, you know, my very first therapist for my eating disorder was a, I don't, I don't, know what kind of degree he had. Um, I know he was a prior pastor um, and that was why my parents trusted him. <laughs> Red flags. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he, so he didn't really have experience with eating disorders, but he had uh, been a model, I, I guess, at some point. And so they were like, oh, maybe he gets it. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So wait, this guy was a pastor, a model, and a therapist. Okay, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I can remember like very, 
in one of our sessions at some point, like talking about like one of the very few questions around gender that I explored with somebody, you know, I was talking with him about like how uncomfortable I felt in certain situations where I had to really be feminine, um, which is a thorough, thorough line for me in my, my whole life. Wearing dresses on Sunday was like a fight. Finding dresses that I felt comfortable in was really challenging um, and dresses were required because the bap is that sort of like Baptist. Yeah. 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 We didn't have like gloves and hats except on Easter, but like dresses, yep. <clears throat> tights, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Anyway, I was having it out with this therapist and um, basically he just like reassured me with my gender stuff that like, it's okay to be a tomboy as long as like at the end of the day. And I was 15 at the time you can put on a nice dress and be a sexy lady for your husband. You can kind of like, you have this freedom to like be an athlete and be a sportsy kind of girl in the rest of your life. And that's fine. And that's actually kind of like the male dream, right? Like if you can like, you know, play football with the guys, play some video games, be a jock. But then at the end of the day, when you need to go to the dance, you know, you put on your dress when you need to go to church, you put on your dress, you put on your pantyhose and like, and like, that's the dream, right? Like that, that's, and he actually shared like, this is my, my wife and she's the perfect woman. And, and so like, maybe you're this perfect woman too, of just being like able to be a jock and be sexy for your husband too. You can be who you want to be during the day, but at night you need, you need to you do this performance for a man no. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and what I took away from that was this isn't a subject to talk about, and that this is the kind of femininity that you need to have in order to get these partners, uh, or you no, know, this this one partner, <laughs> Connor, um, the the youth group, Connor, band the guy, youth group. Yeah. yes. This is such a personal question, and I apologize if it's if it's inappropriate. What were kind of things that made you and your family say, Hey, let's try therapy out for mm-hmm. eating disorders when you're 15. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking maybe somebody listening may think, ah, if that's an indication for, for Aaron, maybe I can do that as mm-hmm. well. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so for me, my friends basically went to my parents cause they were concerned about me. Um, so I had, you know, kind of a a trusted Christian friend who went to my school, who saw that I wasn't eating. Um, My sister had noticed that I had been throwing up. My friends were very concerned. And I think at the time, my parents, they were caught unawares. Um, And I think at the beginning, you know, we all thought this is something that I'll grow out of. Um, This is not that big of a deal. Um, I certainly did not think I would still be in treatment as a 37 year old when I was 15, but it did. After my friends talked to my parents, my mom took me to my physician and kind of did a checkup and, um, was fairly concerned. Um, she gave me the diagnosis of anorexia and basically said, you know, she needs a therapist. She needs a dietitian, and she needs to keep seeing me. How do you feel about your friend's because I feel like in some circumstances it's like oh thank you and others it's like you all fuck you for doing this but yeah you were doing the best you could or there's just the fuck you for doing this you know yeah you know they were doing the best they could 
Um, Had they gone to me at 15, I would have been no help whatsoever. Mm. Parents are not monsters. Like they took it very seriously. And hopefully like my friends had some awareness of that, 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 you know, I, I do think I have been around parents now, especially I'm, I'm also a medical social worker. So, and I worked at a pediatric hospital. Oh yeah. You get it. I have been around parents for whom that information is not useful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully for me at the point in my life that I was like, I did need treatment and I did have some pretty, you know, life-threatening consequences for the eating disorder. The sad thing is that there wasn't treatment available, mm-hmm. you know? So even though they knew it, you know, we drove two hours to get to this former pastor therapist both ways, right? Like an hour and a half ish, depending on traffic. Um, and then, so I'd miss school and, and, and he didn't have experience and we just paid out of pocket um, without wow. mental health insurance. So, and the attraction to him was the, the faith the pastor. Yeah. That's okay. yeah. Yeah. The faith element, him being, because there was a lot of, you know, I, I think in the beginning, my, my parents definitely, they were told, okay, this is a mental disorder kind of thing. But I think there was a large component of them that believed it was pride and arrogance Mm. um, and envy kind of taken to the extreme or that it was like some kind of distraction by the world or by evil forces to distract me from Mm -hmm. my identity in Christ and the woman I was supposed to grow up to be in him. And so there, there was definitely a lot of prayer and praying over. And, and I was, I was a willing participant in that, you know, Mm -hmm. I believed that God could take this away from me at some point, if he would, you know, that it does make treatment difficult when um, that's kind of like a a position that you're coming from. Everything's being filtered through that because you, Everything has to go back to give credit. Everything yes. has to be done to like these eternal consequences. And so you're mm-hmm. constantly holding every thought captive. And mm-hmm. yeah, it adds like a completely other dynamic and mm-hmm. possibilities for shame spirals or for it triggers anything. It just, yeah, it makes it so much more complex. Yeah. And at, at the at the root of my eating disorder, I've kind of like boiled it down in treatment. We had to pick two emotions and I picked shame and fear. Right. Mm. And that, that like you can boil pretty much everything, yeah. all of those experiences down to those two. And that's so intimately connected with faith and how we're viewed and, and really kind of the heart of an eating disorder is really feeling like you are a disgusting, shameful excuse for a human being of which there is nothing redeemable or good about you, you know, and mm. basically kind of, there's this ascetic component as well in terms of I am nothing. Christ is everything. Like I deserve nothing. Mm. Every good thing I do is through God. And, you know, and it, it just, it fits so neatly and perfectly with an eating disorder, that kind of theology and then that kind of disorder. So um, like I must decrease. Absolutely. And then not just like bodily, but emotionally Mm -hmm. and everything. Yeah. So yet there is the physical element to that as well. The suffering, the, I remember when I was a Christian, a big thing that I always think about is that I deserved hell and anything that's better than hell is by the grace of God. So mm-hmm. if I have to starve, well, that's better than going to hell, what I deserve. So I'm still experiencing grace and that's, and yeah. that, that sort of bullshit just doesn't, does not allow us to be a whole person. Mm-hmm. That belief that 
if I were willing enough to have God heal me, I would be healed. It's constantly your fault to be sick. Even if you are like, even if it's a physical illness or a mental illness, the fact that you still have it, like there's something that you're not willing to part with, you know, Mm. there's, there's something that you are making an idol before God clinging you to this disorder. And if you could let it go, God would heal you. And he desires to have you whole, just not like too whole. (laughs) (laughs) It's right. 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 Um, It sounds a lot like the same mental arguments and the internalized mental debates that I would have to have with being queer that I Uh, knew this is who I am. And it always felt like there was a, yeah, but God can get you out of that. God can fix you. God Mm -hmm. can fix you. But no, the more that I lived my life, no, you all don't understand this situation Mm -hmm. at all because you haven't lived it. But this is, this is who I am. So fucking deal with it. And it's a different, scenario i guess with with our bodies but it's still there because you're telling me oh i need to have this idealistic idea so i can fit in but the truth of the matter is i'm just not supposed to fit in so what are you going to do yeah yeah how did your like realizing you're queer (laughs) through all of this like how did that start to tie in and what did that look like for your oh my god um so i'm a late bloomer Mm -hmm. I can relate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think growing up, I always had this attraction to girls. Um, and it was very hard to tell, like, is this because I want to be this girl or because I want to be with this girl? Yep. Um, That's how I and, rationalize it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like when I think back my earliest fantasies and those types of things, it was always Princess Jasmine, Ariel, Winnie Cooper, um, you know, these. Uh, I get it. <laughs> Winnie Cooper, that's um, the Wonder Years, right? Yeah. Played by Danica. I forgot her name. <laughs> Danica. <laughs> uh, I knew this. If you would have asked me last week, I'd have been able to get it. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> and it also, so I had those feelings early on, and I actually did not tend to associate them with shame per se. I just kind of figured like that was how I was. Mm-hmm. Then as I grew up, I started to like attribute now shame to those things when I started hearing comments about gay Mm. or bi people. And I think for me, like I just didn't have any exposure really. And so they would talk about sexual immorality and it was mostly focused around premarital sex. And then as I started to get older, you know, I can remember being out to dinner with my dad and like two lesbian teachers being across the way from us and they were having dinner. And I was like, oh, that's so cool that these two PE teachers know each other. Of course, and, they're PE teachers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And my dad was like very concerned. And I don't know if he even said anything, but he was basically like, don't look. This is evil. You shouldn't be seeing it. And I remember God. being really confused with what was evil. And I'm pretty sure I even went home and asked my mom, hey, we saw my teachers. Why, why is this bad? I can remember some of those early you know, things that I would hear specifically my dad say, like things by women are the biggest sluts. It was so shocking to me because we didn't speak like that in my home. We didn't swear. Like and that it's was... just not true. Gay men, <laughs> we are the biggest sluts if we're going to whatever. But God, it just that idea of shaming somebody for their identity is just so wrapped up into the theology. I started to learn. And also, of course, on conservative talk radio, which was 
kind of mm-hmm. if it wasn't like a praise and worship tape like kids songs the donut man or odyssey or something like mm-hmm. that then it w- yeah <laughs> then it was rush limbaugh and michael medved and all the kind of ultra conservative yes. talk people and that was i think probably where i got the most shame around sexual orientation and so like i literally believed that gay people did not exist that it was impossible to be gay because it was it was nothing about you it was just a choice that you made mm-hmm. to be this way mm-hmm. and that like to actually and if you felt attraction it wasn't real right it was just a temptation it was a temptation. Yeah. It was made up by the enemy. Like, <laughs> and so I I grew up thinking that gay people were imaginary, mm-hmm. um, that they didn't exist. Um, if I did meet somebody, it was like all in their head. And and I I thought inherently women are sexy and attractive and men are not. And that's how God designed us. And it all fit into this binary realm. Women mm-hmm. are supposed to be sexy and attractive. Men are supposed to be stand-up godly citizens. Of course, they're not sexy. Of course, I'm not attractive. We're busy doing other things. Yes, you have yeah. you've got other stuff. <laughs> we can't and go to so the gym. If I feel attracted to women, it's 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 not that I'm gay. It's just that women are attractive, <laughs> period. Uh-huh. They are the ones that everybody wants to have sex with, women and men. And it's all about all of us controlling our sexual impulses and only sleeping with that one person we're supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. So at one point when I was coming out, my therapist was like, so you just thought that everybody was a lesbian. That was what you thought. Just like everybody thinks women are sexy and (laughs) are like, and I was like, yeah, that, that is, that is what I thought. Like gay people don't actually exist. It adds up. It makes sense. Women are lesbians. And, um, and it's like, like what you were saying earlier though, too, yeah. about just the internal debating, the internal, um, compromises that we make in our head of trying to explain it. It makes sense. Yeah. Like what you were saying earlier of, do I want to look like this woman or am I attracted to her? Mm-hmm. We, because we were brought up with these very black and white boundaries, we had to try to fit in all the other space with our heads. And we, all of us that are queer and grew up evangelical, walked out with some of those beliefs that when other people hear them, they're just like, wait, you believed this? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Up, up I, to like at least grad school. Mm-hmm. I wrote an essay and I was like, I've never met another bi person in my life because I thought I was bi at the time. And my teacher was like, I'm pretty sure you've met them. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like in my head, they just didn't exist anywhere, which is the erasure, like the profound erasure and the erasure of so much good. Right. Like, like that is one of the biggest areas of grief that I have in terms of my upbringing um, is like where there, there could have been freedom. You know, and I was always kind of attracted. I went to our queer dance in high school. I didn't tell my parents it was a queer dance, but they had one um, that was sponsored by our, you know, gay straight alliance. And I went to it. So there were all these ways where I was seeking out gay community without feeling like I could have. I had a a friend come out to me in middle school and I went and asked a, a mentor of mine. I was like, what do I do? She says she's a lesbian. Right. You know, and it was really like looking back, I'm like, okay, like I was really curious, like, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? This is a safe way for me to ask this question is with this other person, you know, and it was basically God was don't be too close to her. Cause you won't be able to tell her motives or, you know, those kind of things. And you don't want to, 
lead her on or like have an, an impure relationship and keep praying for salvation. I could only breathe that question to this woman under like all of this, like never tell my parents, don't let, you know. Like, right. <laughs> Before you were even able to be safe to share that, just asking a question yeah. required yeah. Um, safety measures yeah. that normal people wouldn't have to go through, but they're necessary for our experiences. Yeah. We do need to take a short break. When we get back, if you don't mind, I want to hear what kind of set off your quote deconstruction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what kind of like made you start to say, okay, let's break some of these mm. these uh, constructs that I'm living with up. Um, and also, I want to hear more about your work with eating disorders. And before we go, actually, is it better to say eating disorders or disordered eating? Yeah, I I think either is fine. Um, Disordered eating is considered kind of what leads up to an eating disorder. Okay. I don't know where that magical line is, though, that people like cross over into something that's really a disorder. And so I think that whole, you can say like the eating disorder or disordered eating spectrum, right? Like to just encapsulate all of the thoughts, behaviors, attitudes, beliefs, pain, that goes into it. That makes sense. I, I always want to be careful with like terminology because I know that some people are comfortable saying fat and others are no. Yes. It's like queer, you know, there's yeah. like, I have accepted the, the queer label, but some people are like, no, that was used against me for too long. We're not going to win that back. We don't need mm-hmm. to. Let's move on. So I understand that. So with each person I interview, I want to be able to make sure that I'm using the terminology that's best for them. I understand that like disordered eating, eating disorder, that concept is because one is like a thing that you mm-hmm. do and another one feels like a thing that you yeah. have. People who are recognized as having eating disorders generally have some privileges that people who don't get recognized don't have. So basically like, you know, in order to get diagnosed, you're more likely to be white. You're more likely to be thin. Um, and then you get this term that helps you understand your experience of an eating disorder. And for other people who may be like, they have a harder time seeing themselves reflected back in the eating disorder community or the eating disorder recovery community, it might be more comfortable for them to think about it in terms of disordered eating. But I don't want to invalidate those experiences and make them seem lesser. Does that make sense? Like just because nobody has said you have an eating disorder, I don't want people to like cancel themselves out and be like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Um, Because if you identify with the thoughts and the beliefs and the feelings and the activities that are involved, like this might have more common. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I, fuck, I'm going to enjoy this conversation. Um, (laughs) So let's take a really short break. And when we get back, um, I want to dive more into that. Okay. Sounds great. Awesome. A special thank you to everyone who's given to the GoFundMe. You have saved me. Um, As I mentioned in the last episode, in the middle of all of this, I got laid off from my job. Um, No fault of my own, but they had to do big budget cuts and me and a whole bunch of other people fell victim of that. And the timing sucked. And I hate asking for money. It's just not something that is natural to me. So I hate having to do this. So thank you all so much. I've also thought of it this way of just thinking about all of the money that I've helped save people and tithing. So maybe if I've helped you not go to church and feel good about that, just think about how much money I've saved you in tithing. Um, 
<laughs> I kid. Uh, anyway, enjoy the rest of this episode. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Life After. Aaron, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Can you um, tell me what was your deconstruction like? When did that, uh, the big D word, yeah. become a thing in your life? <laughs> um, I think it's something that's been kind of in process since college years, um, but I only kind of learned the term a couple years ago. College years, um, so are you referring to Saved by the Bell or... <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, like around 18. Um, okay. 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 So like meeting other people with different beliefs about God and really kind of questioning like some of those pivotal and like really like elemental parts of our faith. My best friend in college, uh, did not believe in hell. And I remember being like, what? You can do that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And you know, and like, okay, the, the words that like the scriptures that I've been like led to believe really state beyond any reasonable doubt that hell is there. Um, Mm. and really, and really kind of stepping back and being like, okay, like going back to some of the very first questions that I had about my faith when I was like six, seven, eight years old of like, if we have a loving God who also like predestines us, and whatever we're predestined to, we do, then why isn't everyone predestined to heaven? Right. Like having this, um, so really starting to engage and also starting to like respect different viewpoints. Um, I think up until that point, it had been more like that black and white thinking, right? Like there might be many interpretations of this passage, but there's one right interpretation. And to, you know, I can remember, as like a 21 year old hearing my therapist say, you know, and this is specifically around um, queerness. She was like many devout and knowledgeable biblical scholars disagree and Mm. like both sides have merit. And I remember thinking like, Whoa, is that true? Are there actual devout people that believe queer people exist and are okay? Um, Cause we would do the black and white thinking. Yes. And it was all or nothing. It was very much if you're along with this ideology, then you're going to fit all these other things, right? Mm-hmm. But then you start realizing with more exposure, oh, that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not really the case. Yeah. And, and part of what my parents had taught me was that like with enough investigation, like the truth will come out. Mm-hmm. And so I really started kind of taking that as like, uh, like, let's follow this then, right? Like if I'm having these questions about, how people have interpreted different things or if I'm, you know, and they'd also taught me that like, okay, so there's the whole part of biblical theology. That's like, your heart is terrible and deceitful and wicked and uh, awful. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there's this other part that's like the Holy spirit will guide your heart. Right. Like, and that, that you can follow. And so I started to do more of that kind of intuition following. Mm -hmm. um, And and really feeling like, like that was valid. Like yeah, that was a absolutely. valid place of inquiry to come from. Um, and really starting to question, you know, if there's something, cause there were so many passages over the years that I was like, I just really don't think we're getting this right. Uh, like, you know, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Like, I really don't think that the take home message that God wanted us to have was like, be willing to kill your only child. Like, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that 
I don't think we got that right. And so what does it look like if we start looking back at some of these crucial stories of the faith and like actually questioning like, look okay, at them like, in a different way than what we were brought up with. Yeah. yeah. Can we look at the culture? Can we, yeah. Anyway. So I, I think that like stream of kind of inquiry and questions. Um, and now I'm in a place where there's very few things in my life that I'm sure of, and I'm okay with that. Like I was just talking last week with my therapist and <laughs> she was like, so really you're basically questioning every single part of the Nicene Creed. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. And and kind of questioning too, like what's left after that, right? Right. You know? <laughs> it's hard because we look at the religion as the thing that gave us information or gave us wisdom when we were being brought up in it. But now we realize that there's so much other wisdom out there mm-hmm. and so many other people's experiences that when you try to make the Bible responsible for the goodness that it gives, you also have to make it responsible for the badness that it gives. And exactly. it's like, how do we compare this into a more global world now where there's many other ideologies that are available to us mm-hmm. that we can compare and contrast? And if we took the fundamentalist approach, it's going to say, well, of course, all those are going to be evil. But then you look at them and you're like, but she ain't evil. Yeah. And the shit you do is evil. So if we're going to do that, then what are you going to be held responsible for? Right. Yes. And yeah, I don't know, like making a ideology or a belief system responsible for the things that it creates and the things that it mm-hmm. pr- naturally produces. Um, that's always a difficult objectivity mm-hmm. to add into our lives later on after we've been told to always throw that objectivity out and just mm-hmm. have faith mm-hmm. that this isn't just real, but that it's good. And when something is in our minds labeled as good, then we fill in all the blanks and all of the vacuums and mm-hmm. um, everything to, to make it seem like it is good. But a lot of that's external. It doesn't actually belong to the ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, you know, and even even like biblically speaking, like we're asked, like, what are the fruits, right? What are the fruits? Jesus of even said, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, like, and, and like, I, you know, especially when I, when I came out, like that was another one of those like life-changing moments where it was like the fruit of the church at that moment was horrific. Yes. <laughs> and it was isolationist and it was, based in punishment and honestly like abuse like yeah like really the the messages that people said were awful um and, and the concept I, of like look at dis- it. the concepts of disfellowship meant yes. always comes up to me and yeah. every every church has a different it's just cancel it's a cancel culture but it is over beliefs at times so it's like if your yeah. beliefs change and you're outside of this community and that's that's abusive because it's basically saying, oh, you don't say that you believe this? Well, let me do what I can to cut you off from mm-hmm. the resources in your life until you submit back. Yes. And that's not what a belief is. That's abusive manipulation. Yeah. And and it and it is like to see like, okay, like if you want, like if people within this faith want it all to come down to love with a capital L and the God who embodies that love. Like, Show me. Like, this is not, this is not love, you know? And like, if that is like the core of a belief system, like it's not happening. And, Mm. and that's really, 
and I think I had to see because I had so many positive relationships within the church, um, in formative years and, and it did not, and they outweighed like, this is not to say that there weren't negative ones because there were intensely negative abusive relationships as well. Um, but that like, I'm an optimist and like, uh, but it wasn't until like really seeing like, wow, this is messed up. If this is how, if this is how we treat people <laughs> mm-hmm. over who they love, literally like, uh, like it does not, it doesn't make sense to me. And having like a loving, caring person within that system doesn't redeem the system. Yes. Yes. It, it just speaks for that individual who's inside of it. Yeah. Just like good people can be found outside of the system. Good people can be found in the system. Yeah. But none of those are actually reflections one-to-one onto the system itself, because good people like you and I were raised in this bad system. Mm-hmm. So when we were in it, we were doing the best that we could with what we had. Um, and I, I don't know, like if people, there's somebody who recently told me that one of the reasons they stayed in the faith uh, for a while, this was like years. He told me recently, but this happened years and years and years ago. Uh, one of the reasons he stayed is because how, loving and welcoming I was when I was his youth pastor. And then mm. he like left. And then that was in his mind for a while. Of like, man, this guy was so nice. I don't know if I can question this stuff. If it, But what we realized is, no, we were brought up in this stuff too. And our personalities mm-hmm. isn't an advertisement for it. It's just who we are. And mm-hmm. we're trying to make the best in, sense out of what we're being brought up mm. in as well. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely when did you, okay, you're queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're, you're out. I mean, there's yeah. some family members that you, you can't speak to about it, but that's not, that doesn't keep you from being quote out. It just means yeah. that you're, you're and smart. I've, I've talked within to your them. Search. Yes. I have so talked they, to they them. Know. They know. Yes. Okay. When, um, when did that come up for you and what did that look like? Um, so I, I came out as bi when I was 22 mm-hmm. uh, to my family. I was out prior to that to my friends. Um, and then I really <laughs> realized it, it wasn't bi. It was just really queer, um, kind yeah, of yeah. about 30, I want to say 32 or 33. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is when I, you know, I separated from my husband. I started dating a woman. Um, I told my family and was like also public about it on like social media. So um, that was a big turning point um, and, and a hard, a hard one. Social media has made coming out a little bit easier because I think you don't have to do a whole bunch of little individual ones um, yeah. or hope that you get somebody's voicemail. Like it's 1985, yeah. but like, <laughs> you know, social media is just like, Hey, I'm queer fucking deal with it. Bam. You know, and, <laughs> Um, and then people talk and they kind of do the coming out. Yeah. Not always in the best way, but they kind of do the coming out for you. But I'm glad you were able to find um, that freedom in who you are. Yeah. And I did like, I came out on social media, but my family wasn't on social media. The next day I came out to my parents and my sister and her husband. And it was, um, so that was, it was old fashioned and, rough 
Um, Do you want to talk about it? Uh, it I mean, sure. Yeah. I, you know, so I came out on social media first because I felt like I needed community in it in -hmm. terms of like, I was really terrified to tell my family then yeah. is my, my sister was on and I honestly thought my sister might react differently um, because of how she's treated other queer people in her life. And so I had more hope than maybe I should have. Um, yeah. and, and, and similarly, I had more hope for like the church people who were on my Facebook than maybe I should have. Um, so I was informed by some church people that I needed to talk to my mom and dad um, which I did, uh, you know, and kind of my husband and I went over to talk with my mom who was home. Um, and then she said, I needed to talk to my dad. And so we like waited for him to leave a deacon meeting that he was at to come home. Then my dad said, I needed to tell my sister. So it was kind of like this. I had to come out three times in one night, which was really challenging. Um, and it, you know, it was, it just kind of got worse every time <laughs> mm. God, <that laughs> and, it's, and it's hard. And it's something that was very par- painful for them, you know, and one of their kind of top traumas in life. Um, so, you know, and since then I have. You coming out is they would consider like one of their top traumas. Yeah. That's convenient. Mm-hmm. It must be a nice life, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my family is the same way. It's like uh, uh, recently I had an altercation with my brother on Facebook and then he decided to make it like on my wall. He's like, oh, you want to argue? Let's put it on your wall. Fine, let's do this. And then he just made a complete ass out of himself. But it all comes back to this idea that I owe my family an apology for how much pain and sorrow that I've gone, that I've put them through because I just have been myself. And you know, just the, the hard, the hardness and the, the burden that they've had to have of just being related to a, to a queer person, mm-hmm. you know, means that we need to, to come to them and say, so I'm so sorry that you weren't able to fit into this like social norm that you wanted to, and that I've ruined that for you with my, you know, having to be associated with me of having to be family to somebody like me that, oh my God, just this mindset that we were brought up with is so fucked up isn't it yeah it, it, it is it really is <laughs> as a fa- i'm a dad and so as a yeah. father i'm just like i remember when i was younger my my family would say things like i hope when you get older you have a kid just like you so you know how hard it is you too and, yeah and then i did <laughs> I have a kid who is just a copy and paste of me as a child. And let me tell you something. Here's what I've learned. It's not that hard. They were just really fucking bad parents <laughs> that couldn't accept a kid who's different and out there. And I'm not saying that my kid's queer. He may be. But <laughs> like the cool part is, is like uh, my ex-wife and I have both realized that we're queer. And mm-hmm. he's going to grow up with queer ass parents. And I'm going to be mm-hmm. a little disappointed if he ends up straight because <laughs> um, straight people are kind of boring to me now. But all that to say is like, it should not be a fucking burden <laughs> that you have to be family with somebody who's different than you. And it really sucks that evangelicalism and fundamentalism have created this idea that, 
oh, we all should be in this belief system together. And that's what makes it whole. And Mm -hmm. if one family member isn't there, then it's like missing a piece out of this puzzle. And we're never going to feel complete until they're one of us. It's just that sort of mentality just is so fucking toxic. Mm -hmm. If that makes you feel like that's the worst trauma that's in your life, then, you know, kind of fuck you for that. (laughs) You're an asshole. Because it's not about you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if I'm not around because you don't want me around with my partner, like, that's not me punishing you. Or, you know, it's like, I would love to be there as soon as we can be there. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, It's us acknowledging their attitudes. Yeah. You've made it clear you don't want to be around a queer person mm-hmm. who doesn't believe the same as you or isn't uh, who isn't here so that you can preach to them so they could can potentially convert to your religion or to your belief system or to your church. Um, and I wonder if that's the deal with your sister is mm-hmm. like that she was willing to be evangelical mm-hmm. to queer people, but isn't willing to be, friends equal yeah yeah with the queer people yeah do you do you think that might be kind of an attitude that you experience as well yeah and and i think it's it's different when it's family right you know like and you know and i think there's an element of like protecting her children and things like that um fuck that which is sad (laughs) you are an associate professor at where was it? Denver? Assistant at University of Denver. Assistant University of Denver. I aspire awesome. to associate level. <laughs> okay, okay. So it goes assistant, then associate, then... Professor. Then professor. What... Um, and your work is in specifically eating disorders and the psychology behind that, et cetera. Mm-hmm. For the rest of the time that we have here, sure. for most yeah. of it, can you give like a 101 fucking crash course on a fundamentalist inspired fat phobia or however you want to word it. Uh, Can you kind of just like, if you were introducing this concept to a new person Mm -hmm. who did not grow up fundamentalist, Mm -hmm. how would you describe it? And what are some of the things that our listeners who came from the same backgrounds as us, some that they should be looking for inside of their own biases Mm -hmm. um, of how they view themselves and how they view others. Do you mind just kind of giving us a crash course on all of that? Sure. Um, And I'll say too, that in addition to eating disorders, I do a lot of work with weight stigma in general. Um, And in which can manifest. Two different things. Yes. Okay. So that can manifest in eating disorders, but it can also manifest in other ways. Um, So if I, so if I were to start from the beginning, um, I would say that, kind of what we said earlier that eating disorders have a black and white thinking the same way that kind of fundamentalist thought has a black and white thinking. Right. So, and this is also similar. You might have heard the term diet culture. So diet culture is, is a, is a kind of a similar way of thought where we elevate and look up to bodies that are thin and self-controlled. We believe that in order to be, Thin, that people are eating really well 
um, and that that their body, their thin body is kind of evidence that they're eating in a, a controlled way, that they are exercising well, um, that a thin person is necessarily healthy because of their body weight. In the fundamentalist evangelical realm, we connect that with godliness and holiness. So um, we have this belief that things that are of the body of things that are pleasurable, whether that's sex or food um, or even just like enjoyment with somebody else's company, (laughs) that there's this element of um, pleasurable worldliness and sin to it. And there's also within evangelical in the same way that with diet culture, we might abstain from, uh, macronutrients like carbs or fat, or we might abstain from sugar, um, or we might abstain from uh, processed foods, right? Kind of like insert what you believe is bad or immoral here. Um, similarly, in kind of evangelical land, we also abstain from things like sex, sexual contact, uh, food, pleasure, gluttony. Um, and it all kind of gets tied up with this bow of worldliness pleasurableness, the belief that like, if you're experiencing pleasure, you have to be doing it in a very certain specific God sanctioned Mm, way. Um, Whether that's kind of old Testament food rules around what you can and can't eat, or whether that's new Testament purity culture rules um, that, you know, we, so like all of that gets kind of mixed into moralizing Good foods and bad foods, good sex good and, and evil. bad sex. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. good and evil, good bodies and bad mm. bodies, right? Like this idea that like if I'm in a fat body, that there's something out of balance, right? Like, uh, yeah. like maybe my food is out of balance. Maybe my exercise is out of balance. Um, but definitely whatever it is, is spiritual. Mm. Right. Because if I was serving God, if I was in tune with my needs... I would be thin. You would, I would look like, you know, like um, Chris Evans or something, mm-hmm. right? Like, because everything is a manifestation. And yes, rep- yeah. yes. And, you know, if I'm too thin, right? If I quote, look anorexic and I'm using quotes because people can be anorexic all across the weight spectrum. You can engage in self-starvation as a fat person or a thin person. But if I suddenly look too thin, right? Then that's an indication that something else is out of balance, that I am putting too much emphasis on my looks. I'm being too concerned with being beautiful in the world's eyes and not concerned enough about finding my identity in Christ and being beautiful in God's eyes Mm. um, or my husband's eyes. So there's the, the overlap is that diet culture is reproduced in our faith culture. Wow. And our, and it contributes to that back to that diet culture, right? Like it adds this other level of like not only failing physically, but failing morally and spiritually. That's kind of what I've understood with like the way down. Yes. Uh, and I watched a documentary on HBO and it mm-hmm. was just fantastic and helped me understand and started to see like when I mention it to like the Facebook group or to other mm-hmm. people that I knew so many, especially women, of course, would came up and say, Oh shit. Yeah, I did this. Or my mom was involved in this shit. And it, and it, what it basically did is it took lordship theology, this idea that um, if you are a follower of Christ then he's going to be the Lord of your life and you're going to be able to see it change you. 
um, and you have to obey, 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 um, then then you will become skinny. And if you're not, then obviously you're there's something wrong with you spiritually. So mm-hmm. the physical body became a physical representation of your spiritual life within this very broken down community, this very like exclusive community um, to where even their leadership had to keep these weight goals as Mm -hmm. a way to show that they are being holy. So like what you're saying makes sense and it happens with people even naturally Mm -hmm. of taking these really high binary ideas of the Bible and then applying it to our physical form. Mm -hmm. And even in churches that are less fundamentalist, that are fairly mainstream, like we see it coming in, in terms of praying for self-control around food, praying for um, God to be manifested in our health, Um, which, you know, and this is where fat phobia runs into ableism and and ageism and things like that, that like bodies are considered like more and less valuable based on what they do and how healthy they are and how well they perform, you know? And so it's all those things, but I think it's also like bodies are judged on whether or not you want to fuck it. uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so God to to just demean people down to just fucking. Yes. Um, And that's even like, it's having bodies that I would even have, any quote chance with, I hate using that sort of terminology, but it's like, even with people who give us our news, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm never going to fuck them, but I'm only going to listen to them if I do want to. Yes. Fuck that shit. Like what the hell are we doing to ourselves? Right. Yeah. And and then within the context of Christian marriage, it comes up too. If you like, you are letting your husband down. If you're not maintaining the physique that you were when you married him, mm. you know, and he's going to look at your mother and judge right. her physique and her fuckability uh, I did to that. see if well, he's now, I don't want to say okay. fuckability when referring to my ex uh, mother-in-law, but I, I do remember like looking at my ex mother-in-law like, Oh, you know, she's kind of still attractive. She's still kind of got it. So maybe my yep. ex-wife will be. And, Fuck and it's, me. I yeah. hate that I did that shit. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's a product of, of what we're in. Um, mm. And I, so much of healing from an eating disorder is separating from this kind of mindset and separating. And, and I would say healing from weight stigma in general. And, and I would kind of caution, like, it's not just about like individuals who are harmed by eating disorders or weight stigma healing themselves. I would say like, we also have this system and society heal around this, you know, and that it's going to be an imperfect healing for people who struggle with issues of body image or food or any of that. It's going to be imperfect healing as long as the culture we live in is sick. And as Uh, long as like sick is the norm. And it's really quite countercultural at this point in history to be willing to say like, like to accept your fat body, right. To say like, or to, to not just accept it, feel positively about it. Fat activists all the time get accused of glorifying obesity just by Mm -hmm. saying, Hey, I'm going to wear a two piece because I'm comfortable in a two piece. Right. Right? Like it was that fucking shit with Lizzo where it's like, Oh, Oh, we're just going to promote unhealthy lifestyles. Now is that where, no, she's just fucking being herself. You dumbass. Like shut your mouth. Yeah. Um, 
A, you, you would aspire to the kind of health that she has. B, it doesn't matter if she's healthy. Like, like we don't, we don't like, we don't metabolically evaluate every single person ever. And honestly, representation matters. Yes. And like, like representation of unhealthy bodies matters. Like it, of disabled bodies matters. Like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's, mm. I hear you saying like, there's a deconstruct. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I pronounce yes. it that way. Like, it's like de- people throw deconstruction around and they're like, oh, it's kind of like a construction site. No, deconstruct means to the process of you take the constructs, the social constructs, these things that we've been conditioned to believe. And then we systematically take them apart and say, do we believe this shit? Does it match yeah. up to reality? Does it match up to what society should be not what society mm-hmm. is because society can be all wrong and mm-hmm. to have like, and to, you know, uh, prop up these concepts that, that should be deconstructed. For instance, like uh, when we are all pro-slavery, fuck yeah. that shit. We need to deconstruct the idea that slavery is okay. No, 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 it's not done. Let's get rid of it. So like what I'm hearing you saying is there's a deconstruction when it comes to weight that we have to look at what we were brought up to believe mm-hmm. about ourselves, what we were brought up to believe about others. Uh, what were we taught as fact? What are we taught is like unquestionable that we mm-hmm. just have taken on faith. And a big part of that is representation because if we don't have um, I'm sorry if I'm using the wrong words, but like fat bodied people, mm-hmm. then we aren't going to say, well, this is normal and acceptable uh, because everything that we're striving to be. So that's why I am so in love with people like Roxanne Gay or like mm-hmm. I said, Rosie O'Donnell earlier. Mm-hmm. She's not even that, she's not big. She's just like big for what we put on screen because fuck that shit. But like representation is so goddamn important because it allows us to know that the people who look like us are Mm -hmm. thriving in their world, even though they're not be, may not be a fucking camera on them 24 seven. They're not going to have their own reality show unless it's about how fucking fat they are. Thanks TLC, you pieces of shit. You're not helping anybody, (laughs) but like, Real representation isn't that. Real mm-hmm. representation is letting people thrive in their own goddamn bodies mm-hmm. and getting to see that and then pick it up and say, you know, I've woken the moment I woke up this morning, I thought about how fat I was and how I, you know, I'm never going to find somebody to love me. No, when you wake up, love yourself. <laughs> love the body that you're in realize that the body that you're in is who you are and so is your mind and all of that culminate you are a whole person mm-hmm. and we live in a world now that's allowing us to celebrate who we are not by doing any fancy weird like mental gymnastics or whatever mm-hmm. just by showing fucking people living their goddamn lives <laughs> and enjoying it yeah and letting the focus not be on their fat Yes. You know, and so much, you know, I was, so there's a article that came out in the Huffington Post in 2018. Um, everything you know about obesity is wrong. Um, and I worked with the author of that piece for a long time, kind of going through some of the, uh, you know, the, the facts and it was extremely well-researched. It was years of preparation to put this piece together. And we were trying to figure out like, 
what are the visuals for this piece going to be like? Right. Like, you know, and like, we had this idea of like, what if we just showed like fat people doing normal things? Like here's Erin, she's fat and she's making a Turkey sandwich. Right. And you know, here's like Sally and she's fat and you know, she is walking into a store, right? Like, because when we see fat people, we see like headless fatties, right? We see uh-huh. like those news and I noticed that was like images. a part in that article too, right? Was mm-hmm. There was a, um, it looks like there's a stand-up comedian, I'm assuming, Sam. Yes. And the whole part of his is he's just standing there with, with his body, but there's a smoke machine that covers his face. Yeah. And I, you know, when we watch the news and they had a story about obesity or something, there'd always just be like these people just walking through New York with their heads cut off. Yeah. And all you see is their lower body. And they even did this with like fucking queer people within the yeah. church where they talk about, well, you know, there's gay people and it would just show headless. Right. And it's like, on that. like, what is that shit? It's literally about removing the humanity from people. It's the belief that fatness is so disgusting and so shameful that you would never want your identity associated with it. Fuck that shit. Right. And I mean, nine, I'm guessing that they're not asking the fat people in New York who are walking. Hey, do you mind if we take this video of you to show with this clip about obesity in America? Is it all right if we just take your head off? Right. Nope, like we're just going to show your body, but like your body is as much of your body. Yeah. Like your, 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 from the Yourself. neck down is much yes. as much your body as the head up. Right. Exactly. Like, that is your, that is your property. That is who you are. That is your ownness. That is your likeness. That is the braidiness or the errandness mm-hmm. of who you are. Um, and so, yeah, this idea of just like, oh, well, if we don't show their face, uh, but we can make an example out of. Yeah. Fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it was, it was very, it was weird. Um, I ended up like posing in that for that article. Um, Stop. I just got to the picture of you. Oh my God. Okay. This is amazing. You look, um, <laughs> tell them what I'm looking at. All right. So they prior to this, they had me play volleyball because initially they were going to get like action shots of me playing volleyball. But the other thing that they were like, I was like, okay, well, I feel at home in my body when I play with my son. And so I brought like dress up clothes. So I, they ended up going with like me with like a cape on and I'm in my volleyball clothes. So I've got like a skin knee and, um, and I'm in spandex, which is great. Um, and I'm, I think I'm carrying like a captain America shield. You got a captain America shield and a lightsaber, a lightsaber. Yeah. And they have me, they had me like stand on this giant tree that was washed up on the shore of the beach and my little kid is like sitting there also dressed up with his lightsaber mm-hmm. and they had me picture the end of the upcoming administration. Oh. Um, <laughs> and cause I had to get a game face. Right? Cause this was during Trump era. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that's the one that they choose chose was me kind of like yes. sweaty and just, yeah, like kind of like a warrior pose. I wanted to show that fat people are good parents, yeah. right? That there's not like a moral failing in me as, as a parent because I'm in a fat body. And so often you hear that's that the assumption, you know, if I have a fat kid or if I myself am fat, I'm not a good parent. You hear that a lot of like, um, 
and I understand the health side of it. So I'm not mm-hmm. like dismissing anybody or everybody who says this, but they'll say things like, well, yeah, I want to get in shape or I want to lose weight um, so that I could be a good parent or so that mm-hmm. I can uh, be there for my kid. And it's like this idea that if you're overweight, then yeah, you're going to die like any mm-hmm. second. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's not how that works, honey. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> you could be quote overweight. I mean, which mm-hmm. is a concept or a construct in and of yep. itself yep. to say over, that is a judgment word that societally we are labeling. Yep. Um, you can be a bigger bodied person and thrive and live a long fucking time and be there Mm -hmm. for your kids. I understand. Yes. People who were like, yeah, I want to be more like active and be able to be there with them and run around with them. I get that. But I think what you're saying, what I've been hearing in that is this attitude of like, no, if you're fat, then you're, you're not, you're, you're, you're not helping as a parent or you're feeling as a parent. And like, if you're, if you're a fat parent, chances are higher that you will have a fat kid just Mm -hmm. genetically because that's one of the biggest determinants of a person's weight show as a fat parent, show your fat kid how to live a joyful embodied life. That's focused on well-being, right? Yeah. Because fat people have those. That's still healthy to focus on your well-being is healthy. And it looks different. We live in a society that says if you're in a fat body, you, I mean, they won't even supply knee pads that fit me so that I can play volleyball. Right. Cause they're just saying, okay, if the person is like larger than X, Y, Z, they're not going to be doing this. And the reality is like, we have rock climbers that are fat. We have volleyball players that are fat. If you Google like the U S weightlifting women's team, like the Olympic weightlifting team, you're going to see fat women there who weightlift, who are Olympians, right? Like it's not, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, if we make the society that welcomes athletes, parents, kids of all sizes, you know, like if kids are not shamed in PE, you know, and this is something I never understood. Cause I, like I said, in the last uh, hour, like I was a thin kid. Right. And so I got Same. so much mm-hmm. affirmation for my body as a thin athlete and other people in my family didn't get that. You know, but if if the other people in my family had received the same kind of affirmation about their bodies and what they could do as I did, how would their relationship with movement be different? Wow. You know, going back to the gym as a person in recovery from an eating disorder who recovered into a larger body and the gym was always a safe place for me. Right. You know, and all of a sudden to go back where people are all of a sudden like, oh, good for you. So glad you're you're so brave. That's not a welcoming environment for a fat person. Right. Like, you know, or everybody has to start somewhere, honey. Right. Like that's not welcoming. Right. Like that's saying I am looking down on you and your body and its capabilities. We, We need a world where like if I need athletic clothes to do my athletic shit, I have them. I go to the athletic store and I get them. Right. Not like, okay, I have to do recon for months to figure out where I can get X, Y, or Z. <laughs> like, are you going to walk into this store and they'll be like, oh, we don't, we don't have your sizes here. Like nobody wants happens. to hear that or have that experience. Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. The, the idea that you are, you've exceeded the expectations so much that it would be unheard of to have something in your, fuck you. Like, give me a break. Yeah. And, and everybody, re- regardless of their athleticism level, their health level, like everybody deserves clothes. Right. Period. Yes. yes. Like there's like basic human needs that mm. 
fat people are excluded from, whether that's movement, exercise, a movie theater, a sports game, a concert, right? Like in the same way that we talk about accessibility with disabilities, we need to think about accessibility for different shaped bodies. Theme parks. Absolutely. If, (laughs) If you wait in a line for four hours, you should be able to ride the ride. Right. Right. Or know ahead of time. Not for Mm. you. Who you talked about representation earlier. Mm -hmm. Who are your, like your, is it fat role models? (laughs) Yeah. Fat role models are are a total thing. Who are like the people that you look up to and be like, I, I don't just feel represented, but I feel inspired by their character. If they're, um, Anyway, who are some of your some of my faves? Mm -hmm. Um, So Mary Lambert, I love Mary Lambert, and she also so she so she's a singer. She did uh, same love with Macklemore. Okay, 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 okay. She keeps me warm, Um, but she has recently started talking out about some of the weight stigma that she experiences um, and has experienced, and so kind of taking more of an activist role. Uh, Sonia Renee Taylor, who runs The Body is Not an Apology, which is an excellent tagline. She's a poet. She's a writer. um, She's black and bald, and I fucking love her look. Oh, my God. She is stunning. She models. um, Her clothes. Oh, my God. People, Google image search these people because, Jesus Christ, her blouses and her dresses are fucking (laughs) phenomenal. Saucy huh. West is another fantastic big black woman. Um, I think it's S-A-U-C-Y-E West. I might be. Um, it is S-A-U-C-Y-E West. Okay. Correct. You got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's amazing. Uh, Shiloh George um, mm-hmm. is a super fat indigenous woman who talks a lot about body sovereignty and what it is like to claim your body's sovereignty. Okay. In define that colonialization. I like well, this phrasing a lot. Yeah. Okay. So body sovereignty is like, I am, I own am an, and am over my body. Um, and it's also a bit, I think, you know, like it seems also very connected to her indigeneity in mm-hmm. terms of like, a connection to her land and her ancestors. Um, and so, and so it's basically kind of like autonomy, body autonomy and ownership. Um, I love that. The sovereignty idea though, is like, to me, that gives permission for existence, not just permission, but a command of, I'm going to tell you what's going to exist. You're not yeah. going to tell me what's going to exist. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'm trying to, Max Airborne is a fat disability activist. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to find their things. Um, what a badass name. I really wish my last name was Airborne. I'm gonna, <laughs> I might need to change that. They are an artist. They do zines. They talk okay. about... I see them here. They're on Twitter at Twinkle is their name, it looks like. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Gloria Lucas uh, runs Nalgona Positivity Pride. Um, which is kind of an eating disorder resource for indigenous Latinx folks. Um, Can I ask you a question? I wonder, like, yeah. 
because, okay, decolonization, let's define that really quick. That's where mm-hmm. we, it's an idea of deconstruction, really. It's, yeah. We take the ideas that our society was founded on and we say, we don't need to fit into this. Mm-hmm. We're just going to exist outside. Um, so, I, like, I love that people of color are really taking a huge charge in this mm-hmm. of saying, hey, get your hands off of my culture mm-hmm. and get your hands off of what you think my body should look like. Um, yeah. I'm glad that those those two things go together because they really are intertwined in deep ways. Yeah. And I, I would say too, like decolonial thought, like it really is for indigenous folks primarily. Um, and it's, and it's about um, like thinking about all of the ways that we took this white European standard and applied it just unilaterally to all different cultures and nations of people. Um, and in that process, it was a, a violent process. Uh, and we also, mm. we took their foods, we took their languages, we took their genders, the way that they expressed uh, gender and sexuality uh, yeah. and family, you know? And it's so all of like, basically we put this kind of white European cookie cutter in terms of language, food, and also like what we would give them. Right. Like, cause we isolated them and then we gave them like, you know, here's your beans and, <laughs> you know, like we gave them rations essentially um, right. and impoverished and starved folks and took away their cultural foods that they were used to, that they had had for generations. So I think there's, there's so much unlearning. Um, <sighs> yes. In terms of like what, you know, like basically how thoroughly as colonists we completed erasure of, of culture and foods and ideals and bodies um, and how we pathologize those bodies. Um, and so mm. there's this huge overlap then of, of fat phobia with colonialism. Wow. God, that's amazing. Um, can you think of any other role models uh, <laughs> off the top of your head before we uh, kick it? Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> those are some of my faves um I, there's like so many it's hard for me to narrow down so <laughs> <laughs> i love it i i'm so gonna hold on to rosie o'donnell i just <laughs> absolutely absolutely uh, i love the rosie o'donnell show that talks show when i was a kid i just wanted those koosh balls i <laughs> you know i i just wanted to interview celebrities and shoot koosh balls at people <laughs> I think that's a great goal in life. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, thank you so fucking much for sharing so much of yourself and your story today. I know that our listeners are going to learn. Um, and I really just want to add to the representation, especially in deconstruction spaces of bigger bodied people and mm-hmm. to say you, matter you matter mm-hmm. you matter and it is nothing to do with uh the size of your body but has everything to do with the size of who you are and the size of your heart and it that's a big body then fucking i want big body people to see you and mm-hmm. to know you matter we matter too you know mm-hmm. um you're important and i really thank you so much for adding your voice to this conversation today You're pretty badass.
Thanks for having um, me here. My pleasure. And I want people to see that those pictures of you. What was the name of that article, the HuffPost one again? Um, everything you know about obesity is wrong. Beautiful. By Michael Hobbs. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you just scroll down and you'll find the pictures of you and your kid. And it's just, I don't know. You look pretty fucking epic. <laughs> pretty fucking epic. Uh, where can people find your work? And uh, do you have like a strong social media presence that people can follow you or? So on, on uh, Facebook, I think I'm Aaron Harrop three. <laughs> um, okay. That's probably my like the easiest place on social media to trap me down. Um, I think on Instagram, it's Harrop Aaron. Um, and there's also, I run a. Yeah. Tell me, tell of, me about this group. This okay. So, well, I'll tell you two things. So there's a, a group called recovery at large on Facebook that is for people with eating troubles um, who are in larger bodies and want community around it. Um, and then also there's, there's a, a subgroup of us from the life after that have this kind of like eating disorders, fat phobia, dismantling evangelicalism group. Um, I'm like, okay, it's called E capital E D construction so like eating disorder deconstruction clever and what kind of so that's mostly just people who are uh coming out of evangelicalism and said hey this is what my experience has been like what is yours mm -hmm. and you're able to kind of just find some camaraderie and support there yeah yeah it's it's basically you know and there's there's people are kind of on different journeys with their eating disorders uh, in terms of recovering um, and or being in it. Um, so it's more just like, how, how does this, how does like diet culture and eating disorders play into um, my own deconstruction process in terms of faith? Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Absolutely. Um, oh. I cannot thank you enough for sharing your experience. Um, this has been amazing. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. And the listener, if you've got questions or whatever, um, find, talk to the group, get onto the Facebook, see mm -hmm. start asking around and um, find some people who are going through some of the same things as you. I, I've just noticed that like fat phobia and stuff is not talked about in deconstruction spaces as much as it should be. No. And like I said at the beginning, the times that they are, it's always like um, small bodied people talking about it and mm -hmm. that experience matters. Yes, yes. Their experience matters, but the representation um, matters as well. And it's mm -hmm. about time that we give the mic to other people and say, tell us what's up. Yeah. Educate us what's going on in your experience. Give us more information for us to think about while we're deconstructing. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope that at the end, we all come out more open-minded, uh, accepting and loving people than we were before. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I always end the episodes with a little phrase that is, if you don't go to church, Sunday is just a second Saturday. I'll see you next time. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. I used to chop this has been another episode of the Life After Podcast with Brady Harding. Go to our Facebook to find our secret community, and any help on my GoFundMe is greatly appreciated. Check the mic himself, I dare him to fucking And I never heard the story of the ones that went away. Always allegory, when in truth, I had to like the way myself. Used to hate myself, could
yourself out of mental health and live in itself. Speak for yourself, your marriage not a testimony. Don't believe the church is a bribe, but she owe me alimony. I'm a pony up and stick a feather in your ceremony. Wearing weddings out, I call it Yankee Doodle matrimony. And I'm only getting started, my tongue is fire. Fighting gaslighting leaders like your ways are not higher. I don't need a choir to bring down the entire empire. You threw the gasoline, I'm just spitting matches through the wire. I'm just trying to break them free, make them see. Yep, go left, Miguel.